online again. And today I have the pleasure to be visiting Stefan Lang-Gilliat at his home in Santa Fe. And we're having a nice ginger tea, which was a favorite of Charlotte Silver. And you're going to hear more about Charlotte Silver during this interview. So as we sip on our tea, we invite you in with us. A little bit about Stefan. Stefan has studied sensory awareness and related practices since 1980 with Seymour Carter, Ruth Veselko, Ruth Matter, Charles Brooks, and Charlotte Silver with whom he studied and worked extensively until her death in 2003. He was president and executive manager of the Sensory Awareness Foundation from 1995 through 2007. Stefan was born and raised in Switzerland. He studied meditation-based gestalt therapy and bioenergetic analysis, with Marcel Geiser and Gestalt Therapy with Seymour Carter and Walter Zund. He has been a student of Buddhism since 1983, practicing and studying with teachers of different traditions. Stefan lives with his wife Sarah and his son Julian in Santa Fe. He offers workshops in the USA and Europe. Currently, he is working on an oral history and book project documenting Charlotte Silver's life and work. Well, Stefan, usually I would ask you about yourself, mm-hmm. but uh, I'd like to start by asking you about this Charlotte Silver that we've mentioned already mm-hmm. several times. Yeah. Charlotte Silver. Charlotte was uh, born in, in Germany in 1901, and lived to be over a hundred. She died at the age of a hundred and two in the U.S. She studied in the twenties a, a movement practice called the gymnastic. At that time in Germany, there were a lot of innovative new things happening around health and education and nature. And she was was right in that movement in the twenties, studying first with. A, Rudolf Bode, this gymnastic type of work, and then meeting what was to be her lifelong teacher, Elsa Gindler, in 1923. And then later, Heinrich Jacobi also, another teacher that was very important to her. Heinrich Jacobi and Elsa Gindler collaborated a lot in Germany first, and then later, when Jacobi had to leave Germany, there was a break, and then, of course, after the war, they could work together again. I read that uh, Charlotte Silver <coughs> speaks about uh, the First World War and uh, how um, how happy the families were to see the men mm-hmm. after war mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and how the mentality at the time was that uh, people who went to war were celebrated. Yes. And so... The reason I'm mentioning this is that I see that there's an enormous bridge between that mentality and the sensory awareness work that you are doing now. Absolutely. Could you 
talk about yeah. this bridge. Well, of course, Charlotte at that time, she, you know, when the war broke out, she was 13. She was a girl, and, and her her dad had been in the German army, or, or was in the German army at that time, and, and you know, she would tell this story, and you know, she regretted it, but she was a teenager, and that was what was going on. People were excited, and and they wanted Germany to go to war, and they wanted them to beat the heck out of the French. And, and she would go into quite some explanations uh-huh. about, about that. They were so excited and, and supported the war, and, and, sh- and you know, and, and, and waved the soldiers goodbye. And But then she tells, you know, four years later they came back, and they were absolutely devastated. And what a shock that was for her to see how... You know that what it meant, what war meant. I think she got a first taste of that. Then it's because I, um, I personally believe that our childhood experiences can form our future being and mm-hmm. our future work. So, how do you see uh, Charlotte Selvig's work evolving from that? events perhaps. Right. Well, I would be very careful about interpretations about that, though I have my own theory and ideas very clearly. I believe that the work that Charlotte Selber ultimately taught in the U.S., but which she learned from this woman, Elsa Gindler, that it was actually very much uh, tainted by war experience. Not just the First World War, but also the Second yes. War, when Charlotte had already left. But Gindler, her teacher, stayed through the war. I believe that how they worked had a lot to do with, with situations of crisis and of terror. I interviewed one of her, one of Gindler's students who lives in, in New York City. She's in her late 90s now, who, as a Jew, stayed and miraculously survived in Berlin. And she told me about going secretively to Gindler's classes because Gindler was not allowed to teach Jews, but she did. And that they would, they would work on, on things like panic, how to stay the ground, how to find balance in panic situations. They would, I mean, it sounds horrible, but they were aware of what was going on with the concentration camps. They would work on standing a lot because Gindler was aware that her students might be exposed to extensive um, interrogation and may have to stand for hours or days. So they worked on things like that. How can I be refresh myself if I cannot change position in a way that I actually would like to? Wow. So I I see some of that continuing through the work that it was it, it kind of found its its form in a in a in a time of great danger, but also in a time of before the war, between the wars of great exploration mm-hmm. and. And excitement and expansion. And, and expansion. But I see both of those elements still present in the work. In fact, if I may go on a bit. Oh, please. I was not present for that, but at the very end of her life, when Charlotte was 
too weak to get up. She would still, and she never stopped teaching, really. She would, people would go to her, to her home, and she had her bed set up in the living room, and she would, she would teach classes sometimes from her bed, sometimes on the sitting on the couch. And in those last classes, she often worked on standing. And my my original teacher in the work, Seymour Carter, he told me about you know going through this excruciating experience of having to stand much longer than he actually wanted, but then having this breakthrough this personal breakthrough because it was addressing something that he really needed. And, you know, again, I think we should be careful with making assumptions, but somehow it, it seems to me that what happened in, you know, 60, 70 years before at the end of her life was, was there, present, namely working with discomfort. Working with discomfort. Yeah. Let's explain to our friends who are listening, what you feel sensory awareness is about. Mm -hmm. Sensory awareness is about meeting what is, being with what is. It's about opening to reality as it is. Sensory awareness, sometimes I say if I had to use just one word, I would say it's connection. Sensory awareness is connecting or being connected, be it with the person I'm with or with the situation I'm with or with the things I touch, to be connected. In what way is it different than meditation? Well, the word meditation has so many meanings that you could call it sitting, a meditation. Sitting, meditation. It, it is different in that it doesn't have a form. It doesn't have a form. It's being present with what is, whether I'm walking or standing or sitting or lying, whether I'm talking with someone or go to the bathroom and so forth. But you will find these elements in meditation too. It's not that you know, in, in, in Buddhist traditions, they're not present. But to me, having come from a, a, a being a Buddhist practitioner and Vipassana student, when I first encountered the sensory awareness, well, I will often call it just the work, because that's what we call it. Mm-hmm. When I encountered the work, it was like an awakening. It seemed like suddenly I was going from theory to practice. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah. Well, for one, because sensory awareness doesn't have a a spiritual or religious framework. And some would even claim it it, it doesn't have a philosophical framework, which, of course, cannot be true. It's impossible. But for me, it was a great relief that suddenly there was nothing to attain. And before, although I certainly had been warned by my Buddhist teachers, there was always that goal of attaining some state of what we call enlightenment. Mm -hmm. And suddenly that fell away, and what mattered was only the present moment. So ambition just kind of dropped away, because Mm -hmm. there was no place for it. However, the mind, or 
I am clever enough to find ambitious options in anything so <laughs> soon enough we you know we fall back yes we want because we want to attain something and that that in fact that's right now in my present work what interests me the most is that discrepancy between what is and what we want and how we juggle with those two forces so how do you experience the space between what is and what we want how do I experience it well on a very personal level it it appears that um, life is continuously disappointing me because it doesn't do what I want it to do and again you know we've been warm for many years but I'm seeing more and more clearly how I constantly live with this tension and of course I see it in, in my students or people I work with very much too that there's constantly an expectation that things should be at least slightly slightly if not radically different from how they are and yet here we are and reality is as it is as it is as it is and it doesn't seem to care much about how we want it to be how can we, for instance, the other day I, you invited me to one of your classes mm-hmm. and we held a wooden wooden ball, for instance. Mm-hmm. And so how can I be with the wood without resisting what it is? The interesting thing, this is a very crucial thing about sensory awareness, is that it would not be up to the teacher to answer that question. But that might be the question that we would pose in in a class. Is How can you be with this ball as it is? And then you, you would make these discoveries. Well, I can't. Mm-hmm. Or, and then you ex- would explore that further and... and maybe eventually you can separate it out somehow that you can be with what is and there's still this other voice that wants you to go forward and we have to include that I don't think we can shut it out I have tried that, it doesn't work it doesn't work for me (laughs) so what you need is a very open heart Mm. and you know maybe that's what the work is about too that our heart opens because if resistance is there and we deny it by saying, no, I have to concentrate on this, and then there's this other stuff going on, and no, I cannot, this should not be, I have to be with this, then we deny a whole big part of who we are, and it's going to come back to haunt us if we don't address it. And maybe the only thing we can do initially is just to be noticing it and to to not resist it and maybe just you know to include it into our experience which is always many fold as not resisting the resistance not resisting the resistance and it's hard because we trick ourselves with it we are infinitely smart when it comes to that <laughs> Because we make deals then, you know, okay, I will not resist the resistance if then things change. 
Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Escaping, escaping. Yeah. Maybe that's where humor comes in. <laughs> you know, that, you know, there's a point where you can laugh about, at this or about it. and, and it, But in a, in a sweet way, in a, yeah. in a compassionate way. It's like, oh, wow, isn't that interesting? It still well, does it. I still do it after all these years. I was very touched that um, you were speaking about gravity. Mm-hmm. And... Um, I'd, I'd like you to talk about our environments, gravity mm-hmm. and air. Yes. And just to put another th- thing in there, I was very touched because you were saying about the earth, feel feel how she pulls you to her. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was really beautiful. So if you would yes. take this clue and go with it. Yeah. Gravity has always been at the center of this work. But in the last couple of years, I think for me it had to has come to life in a very new way. In that suddenly it was from going from somewhat a, a mechanical, anonymous force that's just present. We call it gravity. It's kind of a scientific term to the realization, well, there is actually something, there is a presence that pulls, namely the earth. Uh There's a mutual attraction. And you spoke about that with tenderness. Yes. And I'm very careful with making up stories. In our work, we do not work with images. However, we cannot avoid it. And I have let myself play with images a bit more in that I talk about the earth as a she, the earth. Mm-hmm. Because in German, which is my mother tongue, Swiss, it is die Erde. So I talk about she is pulling, which personalizes it a bit. Like there's actually some presence, like we are a presence. Mm-hmm. That is also there. And that is actively pulling, 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 tugging on us. And that we have a, we can respond to that. We do. The question is how? Is it a, to, to use that metaphor some more, is it, is it a live relationship? Or is it a habitual responding we can hardly call it a response, reacting mm-hmm. to something that is there but that we don't really care about. So I have started using kind of relationship analogies as, you know, as though we were another person that calls for our attention. And, and that's what the earth does. And we, I don't know about consciousness of the earth. I don't know anything about these things. I want to be very careful because mm-hmm. in sensory awareness, what we need to do is to to know from experience and not to make up theories. So we can use an analogy. I say, can you feel how she is pulling? Mm-hmm. 
and it can it, it can help us to really feel what is going on because all of a sudden it becomes more personalized. Oh yes, she's pulling, or we lift a rock, or for that matter, it could be a cup of tea or anything, and we feel. As I will then say, she's already there. As soon as I lift the cup, oh, there is already another presence also in that. Because if we, if I would touch and lift the cup in outer space, there would not be an experience of, we, we call it weight, but I call it attraction. Because weight, again, is something that, to me, sounds like it's just inherent in, in the cup. Mm-hmm. It's not a relationship. But that experience is really an experience, is, is a relationship, namely of the earth pulling this cup down and of me pulling against that pull. Gravity, uh, gravity has had a, a bad reputation lately. Right. And so, uh, just in this one class, uh, you restore the dignity of gravity within me. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. So. Yeah, to me that is so important. And I think it is crucially important for where we are in, in our culture and on the earth at this time. Because I think it is for lack of relationship that we destroy the earth. And gravity is a, a, a primal experience of that relationship, namely that the earth pulls us to herself. Now, we, you know, we can make a story out of that, which may be helpful, but we don't have to. But there she is, you know, she's holding herself, and then also she's supporting herself, us. The ground supports us. Mm. So there's this very important relationship, and I, I believe that if we can feel that and really awaken to it. It will not only be to our own benefit and our health, but we will relate differently. I mean, I do. Because every time, just a slight exaggeration, every time I, mm-hmm. I lift a cup, I go into relationship. And I, I sometimes I play with that. I say, oh, hello, Earth, you're here too. Wow. You're yeah. here, you're pulling too. Yeah, yeah. And it it awakens me, not just on a mental level, but on a cellular level, through my arm, through the spine, wherever I I feel that relationship. Because I have to respond every time, every gesture, every gesture, every movement is a relationship, is relating with the earth. So when you lift the cup and you're aware that... There's a relationship in, with the earth in doing that. Mm-hmm. You you feel it in your heart yes. rather than than in your than just through your brain, perhaps. Right. Although yeah. this is a very experiential work. Yeah. So why don't you describe a little bit? Say somebody comes to your door. And uh, they will have a session with you. Mm-hmm. Describe a little bit how, what work you do with them. Mm-hmm. Well, currently, it will. It depends on where the person is, certainly. But 
but currently it is very likely that I will want to offer the person an experience of gravity and of, well, no, I should say an experience of relationship with the earth. I do it not just because I think it's important, but because I find it so gratifying. I, I find it so enjoyable. I find so much joy when I have this relationship. It really opens my heart immediately. So that's why I try to convey that experience. I I might ask people to to stand and, and then lift their, their arms to the side because then immediately we feel, oh, there's something pulling. And then often I will use objects, stones, or anything that has mass and that is clearly attractive and we we play a bit with that I ask people to lift the stone and to sense how that stone is in this relationship and how we enter this relationship by lifting the stone and I will probably work a lot with that in an initial class with someone it's very simple it's very easy people most people immediately have a an experience of wow yeah. it's always been there but suddenly it it it's not just a a nuisance but there's actually gravity as 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 something that is a call remembering remembering yeah i was thinking it's um it's interesting because um i was born at six and a half months and I've always had, I call it, spatial dyslexia, mm. which what I mean by that is difficult for me to have an awareness of my body in space, in the space that I'm in. And I'm wondering if you ever thought about that, this work as a way to re-gravitate mm -hmm. uh, someone who has this kind of situation. Right. I haven't thought about it, but I would think that it would be quite effective. However, it is important to know that this, this work is not therapy. This work is an exploration. And of course, if I know or see or hear that something like this is going on, we will work with that. But but my interested one was interest would not be in trying to fix it, but trying to explore what is going on. And then maybe it will change. But I'm much more interested in understanding what is mm. than in immediately going to a different place of, oh, this is going on with you and we should fix that. I mean, I, I do that. You know, it's tempting to do. It's hard not to do. Right, right. And yet this work is very much about change, isn't it? Well, it it is about the change that is happening anyway, and to be with it. But it's not about doing, about making a change, but being open for the change that wants to happen. And sometimes it doesn't, or it it, it seems not to want to happen. And can we then be with that? So it is about change, 
It's not about, okay, you come with this condition, let's fix it. But you would come with the, with the condition and we would say, let's, let's explore it, let's really embrace it. In my experience, that's when change is possible, is when we, when we embrace what is. I have tried to fix and change myself for very many years. <laughs> and I may be an exception, but, uh, you know, it I doesn't don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't work that way. That's come into focus in recent months in my life very clearly. And, and it, is, it is a sobering experience to notice that some of the tendencies that we have that we make call unhealthy or dysfunctional. They're very stubborn. And just by us wanting them to change, they're not going to. So I am exploring with my students too the possibility of embracing what is rather than trying to change it. And it appears that Simply by being with what is, it can change. And it will change, but maybe not in the way we expect. But if I want it to change, it will somehow stay the same. I don't know if it makes any sense, but that is my experience. And the more I open to what is, the more what is can change. Is there... um a relationship to widening one's compassion to oneself through this work? Or one's compassion for oneself? I, I hesitate because to me the word compassion is always about a relationship. And when it comes to compassion with oneself, I think there's a bit of a semantic problem. Really? At least that, that's the sense I get. And then, of course, there's the, the other question, what that self is that we talk about. Maybe I would prefer to use other words in that there's, there's a, an opening or maybe compassion for the human condition. Mm-hmm. Of, you know, we, we are part of that. And, and compassion is not directed at a self. But... But, but it's an opening of the heart that it will embrace not individuals. And I've never thought of it that way, but it will embrace mm-hmm. suffering mm-hmm. or pain rather than a person. Very interesting. Charlotte was always very concerned that her work would not lead to a self-centeredness and the preoccupation with oneself. Uh-huh. She would often quote taking our time saying if there is seeing there needs to be action. If there's no action, why seeing? So to her it was important that we would open it and I experience it as leading to compassion and to a freedom to, to act and to be with things. And that always includes what we call self and other. 
I think compassion compassion is the breaking of that barrier or of that artificial distinction between me and the rest of the world. Beautiful. Yeah. Thank you. Mm-hmm. I would like to um, ask you to talk about uh, your project, Breathing Earth Explorations. Uh, you say here in the light of the crisis in which the living earth finds herself at this time, it seems to me that there is nothing more important than to become again what we have always been, an integral part of the larger community of life on earth. Well, in a a way, we have already started to talk about that when we talked about the the earth's pull, what we call gravity. That is maybe the, my groundwork in, in that is that we have this experience of being being related, of being in relationship. That is very primary and on a cellular level. And, um, you know, we might be in what we call out in nature, but we don't even have to be out <laughs> in nature because we're in nature all the time. <laughs> You know, we can we can do it in a in a office building high riser because even there the earth will still manage to come through and tug and say, Hey, I'm still here. Are you here too? So that you know, the groundwork. And and then the other part that we will explore and experience is the earth's capacity to also support us. I mean in a very little literal sense to to support us now we are sitting or when we stand and walk, that she holds us up. And then I also, you know, the breathing also refers to, to the air. And there's another presence that we usually do not recognize, but that sustains us from moment to moment to moment and even makes this conversation possible. Without air, you would not be able to hear what I'm saying. So there's this presence that we are bathing in, much as we bathe in gravity that surrounds us, and not only surrounds us, but of course in the process of breathing. There's this constant exchange with the world. So there's another relationship that's very basic of breath and of that that exchange of air and of course we can we can then relate to plants and to to other living beings that are also part of this process of exchange of air and I try not to go too much into imagining that, mm-hmm. but to be very humble in, in experiencing it, to stay on the experiential level again. And always that brings me the greatest joy. When I can feel something, I can think about everything, you know, and it brings me some pleasure. Mm-hmm. But to actually feel it and to experience it is is such a, so much deeper. So, you know, in, in the workshop, we will also play with the air. 
and experience it more actively interacting with the air. Stefan, would you like to talk about the book that you're writing? Yes. It's actually, it's more, it's more than a book. I call it the Charlotte Selber Oral History and Book Project because at the current stage, I'm interviewing many of Charlotte's students, any that I can find, and, and peers and, and relatives, which uh, is an interesting task because, of course, because she was so old when she died, most of the students actually knew her when she was old. Yeah. She, they might have known her for 40 years, but, you know, she was already in her 60s. Anyway, but, but my interest is in, is in both hearing the voices of these students, that these people that were very much affected and touched by Charlotte and her teaching. And then also, I'm, I'm just absolutely fascinated by her life. And I'm very fortunate that we have, in the 90s, I knew that I wanted to do this, and I started interviewing her extensively, and she told me her life. And it's such a fascinating life, you know, having started in, in Germany and then that whole period between the wars, that period of creativity and chaos and potential. And, and then being a successful teacher in Germany and then losing all of that in the 30s mm-hmm. and retreating more and more into a private life. And then being catapulted to New York City, and there's a whole new life starting there, and many new connections. First, it appears mostly among other German or Germanic Jewish immigrants mm-hmm. that were networking. A lot of the, you know, well-educated people landed in New York City and. Mm-hmm. and psychologists and psychotherapists and so forth. So she started to rebuild her life there and was again at the at the forefront of, of a, a new movement uh, of a new way of understanding psychology, psychotherapy and she she in the 40s then met and became very close with Eric Fromm. Mm-hmm and work with these people and, and they I, I recently interviewed Stanley Killerman who knew Charlotte in the 50s too and who said you know things were really happening in New York at that time you cannot believe what kind of a scene it was because often you know we hear about something that then became very important for Charlotte too is Esalen and kind of how how Esalen, the Esalen Institute, how that started a whole mm-hmm. movement of human potential yes. and exploration, and and you know, and then there's people say, oh no, you know, it was really it was New York in the 40s, you know, and then of course the German Jewish immigrants say, oh, it was actually really the 20s in Germany. Okay. So I'm kind of, I'm exploring not just Charlotte's life, but also that arch of. Creativity. creativity and expansion and exploration from you know from Germany and to the United States and initially to New York and then 
to California, and that's very simplified, of course. Yeah, yeah. But it's a fascinating development, and Charlotte always seemed to be right in the middle of it and playing a very central role, though. She was never... She was, in some ways, she was never very famous because she didn't care about that. Mm-hmm. She was just absolutely devoted to her work. That's what she wanted. She was, in that sense, she was very ambitious. But she was not ambitious in the sense of having a name. But she, her work really underlies a lot of that. You know, then it, it went to Esalen, and she was the first person there to actually teach experiential work in 1963 and her work became a very important ground for Esalen. But then she moved on. She never somehow attached herself to a place or a role. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. She, she was just interested in her work. She, she was allied with Alan Watts as well. She met Alan Watts, I believe, in 1952. And uh, she was given a book by her aunt, I believe, and read it, and she was blown away, and she wanted to go and meet Alan Watts, and, and, and she visited him in San Francisco. And they very quickly became quite close, and they started teaching together a lot. That is, Alan would give a lecture, and then Charlotte would teach, you know, or lead a class in sensory awareness. At that time, it didn't even have a name, the work. Which I don't. I, I want to mention that quickly. That was actually an, an interesting point. And Charlotte never really wanted to work to have a name, and she was very concerned with that because she thought if you give something a name, it kind of freezes in in mm-hmm. some kind of. Yeah. You put it in a drawer and it's this method, and you pull it out when you need it and stick it back in. She was never comfortable with that. Even more, her teacher, actually, they had a big falling out when Charlotte, for practical reason, then decided to call the work sensory awareness. That her teacher thought that was not something that should be done because then you would confine it into a framework Mm -hmm. while it was exploration and discovery is not a method to achieve anything. So anyway, that, you know... Quite obviously, Alan Watts really liked that that flavor of the work, and and he, you know, he called it the living Tao. Yes. yes. And and so they did teach a lot together, and I think they were quite close. I would like to remind everybody that um, you can learn more about sensory awareness and Stefan's work at Mindfulness in Motion. Dot. Okay. So, Stefan, thank you so much for speaking to us. You're welcome. Thank you. And uh, I still want something from you. Uh, Would you like to say a few words to bring this around? Let's see. Well, maybe to pick up from where I just ended about this not being a method. It isn't a method, but it has method. And it's always about coming into connection and being in, in connection. And there is no method to that. Mm-hmm. Because our senses 
our eyes see already, we open our eyes and we see, our ears hear, I speak, you immediately hear. But to realize that as the miracle that it is, is, is just a, a wonderful opportunity to, for the heart to open and for, for, for the mystery of, of life and who we are. So it's the simplicity that fascinates me. It's not that we need to learn some fancy technique. We just need to lift a cup of tea and taste it. Or, you know, I see your smile and, and to know it mm-hmm. is very beautiful. And life becomes very simple. And then we fall into the trap of making it complicated again. Apparently we just love that. But there's always this opportunity in every moment. Recently, if I, if I may take a minute for that, sure. recently a, a student asked me in, in LA, I was teaching a workshop, and she said, could you give us a practice for where you're not here? And, and I said, if you're interested, you don't need a practice. Because mm-hmm. when, when we're curious, when we're interested in what is, that is, that's it. There's no practice needed. Now, the reality of life is that, you know, sometimes we apparently are not interested or something seems to be in the way. So practices are helpful, there's no doubt. Ultimately, it's just open your eyes and you will be very surprised what you see. <laughs> All right, folks, this seems to me like the opposite of boredom. <laughs> oh, finally found it. <laughs> Thank you so much, Stefan. You're welcome. Yeah. Thank you.